This morning we continue our study of uh, the letter to the Thessalonians, and our scripture comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who fall asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. We're in a section in Paul's letter where he reveals that Christians relate to life quite differently in three areas. The first area is vocation. What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean for our day-to-day living and how we relate to work? Not only the how we relate to work, but then the second area which we spoke of was sexuality. And what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the reality that there is a God, there is a divine creator, what does this mean for how we relate uh, as Christians to our sexuality? And then the third area is the subject of death. How do Christians relate to death? What are the implications of living day to day, having a particular worldview on death, that death is not final? As opposed to the idea that death is absolutely final and that we're passing into a state of non-existence. What are the implications of all of this? Uh, there's a teacher in New York City. He's a, one of the preachers at, uh, at one of the Redeemer New York City churches. His name is Jeffrey White. And he gave an analogy that I'll open up with here. He says, imagine you're invited to a party and you and your friends go to the party. And when you get there, the host says, hey, everybody, I'm glad you came. There's food over there, there's snacks over there, there's drinks over there. Uh, Quick announcement, at midnight, everybody dies. Uh, Enjoy yourselves. What would our response be to that? Thanks for that, where are the chips? Or would we stop and pause? What? That's shocking. What do you mean at midnight we all die? Well, hold on a second. Well, can this be avoided? How would we relate to that? He says, that crazy microcosm of having a short time span to to knowing the, the time of your death... Is a, is a way of sitting and pondering what it's like to, as a human to go through life not thinking about the most significant event that happens to all humans, the trajectory of all, all humanity, would be a little bit like saying, yes, one day we'll die, but <clears throat> let's not think about that past the chips. For Christians, we don't need to bracket out death in order to live lives of joy and not have enter into a spiral of depression, we can actually think very deeply about death, and it actually being something that, in the Apostles' words, in verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words, that death is not something that cripples the Christian. And he wants the church to not be ignorant about this. So we're going to unpack a few things about how we relate to death as believers. And we're going to talk about the hope of the gospel in that being the, the driving force behind how we relate to this how it affects our worldview. Firstly, the hope that carries us through grief. Secondly, the hope that satisfies our deepest 
human longings, and then lastly, how that hope impacts our life today. So first, let's begin with how this hope carries us through grief. In verse 13, he, he talks about <clears throat> those who've fallen asleep, uses the term sleep. That term would have been familiar because lots of the, in, in, sort of just in the Greco-Roman conversation, they would refer to somebody who died as passing away or passing into sleep, sleeping the sleep of death. But it was an eternal sleep. And uh, some of their ancient writings were full of sort of an eternal pessimism, pessimism regarding death. Some of their most famous poets. Theocritus was a poet. He wrote 260 years before Paul wrote this letter. And one of the things he wrote about death was, Hopes are among the living. The dead are without hope. Uh, Catullus in 84 BC wrote, Suns may set and rise again, but we, once our brief light goes down, must sleep an endless night. And that's not uncommon to what most prevailing view in our city today would be that once you die you, it's an endless sleep it's it's the end there we don't exist and so paul takes this familiar term sleep of death but then he undermines it uh, by insisting that it's temporary because of the resurrection of jesus christ that death could not hold christ and therefore death will not hold those who are united to christ and so as those who are united to christ we're going to definitely feel genuine sorrow and grief we're not stoics but also our tears don't drown out our hope. And we don't grieve without hope. We actually grieve with hope. In verse 13, the word for hope is, el- is elpida in the Greek, which means confident expectation. We use hope like fingers crossed. <clears throat> I hope that after I die, maybe there's an afterlife. Maybe It's just, it's all fingers crossed. But Paul is not saying fingers crossed. He's using really strong language here. We have a confident expectation. And he's basing, basing that on the physical resurrection that he witnessed, that the apostles witnessed, that hundreds and hundreds of people witnessed. <clears throat> I'm not going to carry on about that, but if you're visiting this morning and you're exploring Christian faith, it is an interesting point in human history for historians and sociologists where overnight thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people Abandoned their philosophies or their worldviews and began to worship Jesus Christ. Because if you're just writing a myth about a guy named Jesus and creating a legend, uh, you definitely went about it wrong because no self-respecting Greco-Roman would believe that you rose from dead in a physical body because their whole philosophy of the afterlife was either that you didn't exist or other poetry would suggest you're just sort of a part of the ethereal universe, but you're certainly not coming back in flesh. You're trying to escape the flesh. And the Jews didn't believe in a bodily resurrection in this manner either because they did believe in the resurrection, but it was wrapped up in in a political Davidic kingdom renewal. So the Jewish understanding of resurrection is when there was resurrection, it also meant that all the, you know, that God had brought restoration to Israel and Rome would be the end. So that's why they rejected Jesus Christ as being the Messiah because they're like, impossible because Rome is still got their foot on our necks. So he can't be. He couldn't have, ro- he couldn't have risen. So the Jewish idea and the Greco-Roman idea of resurrection doesn't fit what all the gospel writers wrote about the resurrection. And <clears throat> so this is significant uh, because Paul is saying we have a confident expectation here. And Paul's not an intellectual slouch. And so he's saying this is why we can believe this way about having hope in death. In verse 14, he talks about how Christ died, rose again. And in him... If Christ had, a, resu- had a, a, a bodily resurrection, so do those united to him. 
And that phrase in him is this wonderful sense of hope. That in the gospel, we know that we are not accepted by God on the basis of our progress, but on the basis of Christ's perfection. That Jesus Christ is God incarnate, who through the millennia of Israel's history was promised to come to reunite humanity, wayward humanity, with our loving creator. Because apart from him, we don't want him at all. And so he's moved heaven and earth to come and to, to reunite us with him. And Jesus Christ goes to the cross and he offers a perfect substitution. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect temple. He's the perfect priest. He's the perfection of the entire sacrificial system. And he is the perfect substitute. And Christ's substitution does not require our contribution. So the Christian can have hope in death, unlike other religions of the world whereby you're given pathways to a particular salvation, but you definitely don't have any assurance about it. So if you have uh, friends who are Muslim and they'll talk about keeping the Sharia law, keeping the Hadiths, uh, they'll have a lot of conversation about the paths of salvation laid out by Muhammad according to the vision that he was given by Allah. They'll talk that way, but they're not going to use assurance language because in all that worldview and all worldviews, whether it's Buddha's eight path, you know, eightfold path to enlightenment, whether it's the the pathways by which we sort of transcend and become part of the all-soul. All of these sort of religious ideas from various religious thought leaders all end with you being the center of your salvation. It's all really riding on your ability or inability to follow this path. Christianity is not that. The reason why Paul uses such language like Elpidus confident expectation is that, no, this is actually all riding on Christ's perfection. All of humanity is deeply flawed. And so as Christians, we're united to him and indwelt by the Spirit. We desire to live to the obedience of Christ, forsake our sin, and live to the glory of our Savior. And yet, though we falter along the way, there is a confident expectation here. So that's why he uses that language. And he doesn't want, because to back up for context, the Thessalonians are worried about Christians who are dying right now. They think Christ hasn't returned, so now what happens? So Paul's trying to answer some of that. He's going to answer it later in the letter more as the weeks progress, and I'll unpack it further. But that's really what's at the heart of this argument and why he's beginning to talk about it. He doesn't want the church freaked out about what happens when a believer dies. Uh, what does this mean? He doesn't give us a lot of detail about it, but he says that the soul is united with Christ, but awaiting this, re- this physical resurrection. And so <clears throat> he uses the phrase, hidden with him. Uh, during the confession, Peter talked about our justification. And when Susan teaches the kids about what it means to be justified, she says to be justified by Christ, it's justified, always obeyed, and justified, never sinned. And that's not our reality, but that was the perfect life of substitution that Christ lived. And so all of the hope and everything is connected to him and in our justification. So for all those united to Christ, death is not final, death has been defeated. And he wants us to to relate to death with sorrow and tears, but not without hope when our brothers and sisters die. That we don't don't, uh, have a sense of dismay, discouragement, sense of discombobulating finality over it. As a minister, I've officiated many funerals, some for Christians, some for agnostics, some for atheists, old people who lived full lives into their 90s, infants, in one case, young, a young child thrown from a car. Tragedies. 
If you don't believe that after death there is a divine and loving creator who has moved heaven and earth in order to unite us to him, if you believe that in the end it just ceases to exist, I've seen it and witnessed it as I've sat with these families of multiple worldviews, not just talking about Christians, that is radically dislocating. And it is, it, 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 it on a very deep level is just so disconcerting. And so what Paul is getting at here when he uses this language of sleeping the sleep of death is he is undermining the senselessness. He's saying for the Christian, even our sorrows and our tragedies and our tears are not without meaning. Because we don't just rage into the night and say, it's such a, such a senseless death, it's such a senseless sorrow. Why does this one live and this one? It's just this existential crisis. For the Christian, there is a calm, that words fail me to describe it, that comes into the soul because you know your very life is in the hands of God. And so then there, we grieve, but not as those without hope. So let's move on to how this hope satisfies our deepest longings. In Christ, we're in Him. If Christ rose from death, so do we as those who trust in Him. This is a physical resurrection. And this is deep in the human desire. Christ's resurrection and promised return, and we talk about this all the time at Redeemer. And the reason I talk about it is I think it's one of the things that makes the Christian faith so compelling. It's why in Acts chapter 17, when Paul was in Athens, and he was speaking about the resurrection, some of them said, you're drunk. But some of them said, we want to hear you again about this tomorrow. Because you're tapping into something here. Woven deep into the fabric of humanity. We want pleasure and joy that doesn't end. But it always ends. Death steals it. We want health and vitality, but we have bodies that break down. And death ultimately steals it. We want prosperity and flourishing in the neighborhood, in the city. We want it to have no horizon, but it always, the sun always sets. Death always steals it. Our world is a paradox of beauty and horror, and we're tired of the paradox. There's something woven into the fabric of every human that we, we deeply crave a world of love without hate and joy without pain and justice without oppression, we want life that doesn't end. And we strive for it in a hundred ways. But if you are united to Christ by grace and faith, all of those longings are coming to us. This is precisely what the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his return brings. The renewed and glorified bodies, the renewed and glorified city, the renewed and glorified humanity. If there is no resurrection, then it is immensely dissatisfying. Even if you can intellectually wrap yourself around and just, you know, believe at your core that in the end we move to a path of non-existence, that is not psychologically satisfying. Because from a psychological point of view, we all live in a radical dislocation from that. We want to live with a sense of great meaning and love. and We want to live like life matters. To borrow from a British... Uh, Journalist Peter Hitchens, he wrote a book called uh, Rage Against God. And, and in it, he's, he calls us homeless utopians. Because he lived behind the Iron Curtain and he has this wonderful 
life story. His brother is the famous Christopher Hitchens, a very famous uh, outspoken uh, atheist. And uh, so Peter Hitchens says, you know, we're homeless utopians because we're craving for this world that we can't create. And he's like, I've kind of done my research. I'm looking at history. I'm looking at humanity. Somebody wakes up in the morning and wants to nudge the world in a loving and beautiful direction. Somebody wakes up in the morning and just courts death and creates chaos. There's a crazy senselessness to it. There was an atheist writer. He was a professor at Oxford, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ. His name is C.S. Lewis. And he, when his wife died, he said, if she is not now, she never was. I mistook a person for a cloud of atoms. If life ends at death, it doesn't amount to very much. And what Lewis draws out is there's this strange, inseparable connection between life being either totally meaningless or totally meaningful based on what death actually is. Because if it is the great eraser that erases everything, there is a strange clutching. Our grieving and our sorrow in the end is is dismal and strange because we're grieving a loss, but ultimately in the end there is no loss because in the end there's nothing. So it's a strange dislocation from what the soul wants. But in Jesus Christ there is this glorious satisfaction of our deepest longings. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is the king, so he's got unlimited resources, and he has a crisis and he's setting out for the path of meaning. And in a tremendous, you know, unjust summary of his writings, he calls himself the Koheleth, the philosophy teacher. And he gives the three stock answers that most in his experience gave. You can find life in humanism or hedonism or existentialism. Again, I'm truncating. He spoke about more than that. But he says, listen, you can just say, reject that, you know, there is no God. I'm just going to be a good person and I'm going to work to make the world a better place. I'm going to be a humanist and I'm just going to be loving and kind and I'm going to make work uh, the most important thing. And then he has a crisis because he realizes that there are people who want to live with wisdom, but there's also fools ruining the world because they're fools and it angers him. And then he says, our English translations, it's meaningless, it's all vanity in the Hebrew. It's chevel. Which is a way of saying if you had a candle and you blew it out and the smoke just slowly curled into the air, you feel like you could reach out and grab it, but you can't grab it. He says, that's life. That's what it is. There's no God. You're just grasping at this thing. So he shifts, and he's got all the resource in the world to make all of his dreams come true. He's the king. So he shifts from building meaningful things with work and saying, I'll find, I'll find purpose in this, and the fools are ruining that for him. Whether you're wise, whether you're a fool, you build a city, you, you create flourishing, you, you, you do genocide, it doesn't matter because in the end it's all chaval, we're all dead anyways. And he moves from that to hedonism. Forget work. Live for the weekend, baby. Let's go. So he shifts. All the sex I can have, all the drink I can have, all the fun I can have, all the party I can have. I mean, there's a section in Ecclesiastes that, if I was to paraphrase it, it sounds a little bit like... It's usually, that's the shift. And then, that's, he, then he has a disaster. Because he has to concede that he's empty. Because a life of non-stop leisure and comfort is ludicrous. And nobody is truly satisfied by that. 
So they've elevated this good thing called pleasure, which is a wonderful thing, but they've given it a coronation ceremony and said life was actually about this. And it's utter nonsense. And he says, oh, he, he, well, he doesn't say, oh, my God, because he's saying there is no God. So he's like, oh, my, my, uh, oh, my, me, um, I'm empty. And then not only does he have that crisis, but he also realizes he has to, he has to go through life with a, turning a blind eye to all the suffering and sorrow. Because if you have a comfortable life, then perhaps you can insulate yourself with leisure. But most pe- for most people in the world, by the billions, life is short and hard. And he says, this is not working. It's like the pirate's curse from uh, the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movie, the first one. Not the 18th or the 19th, I forget which one we're at now. But the first one, the pirate's curse. They're drinking the wine and the wine is spilling through their rib cages. And, the, and the, dead, the undead say, no matter how much wine we drink, no matter how many women we have, there's this insatiable appetite that can't be filled and we're damned because we're not satisfied. That's his shift to hedonism. And then he moves to existentialism. Listen, life has no divine designer. There, the, the, there is no purpose. There is no meaning. The universe spun forward for no reason. And when you die, you cease to exist. Therefore, you have to defy that dark cloud of reality by being a courageous world changer. You have to create your own meaning. You're the curator of meaning. So pick what life is all about and then run after it. Well, that's amazing. Amazingly subjective. Because objectively, life isn't about that. It's not true. It's just your truth. And you say, well, that's wonderful, though, to have, all have our own, own truths. It's ludicrous. Because you can decide that the meaning of life is Pokemon cards, and nobody can tell you otherwise. Because it's like, look, man, I've decided the meaning of life is this. And if that's your meaning, that's your meaning. But, but Solomon goes, well, this is a crisis. Because what I care about is what is objectively true. I'm trying to be thoughtful about the human experience. I'm trying to be thoughtful about the cosmos. I'm staring at the stars and I'm asking myself astronomically sized questions here. So don't just tell me that everybody gets to decide. Because again, Solomon's like, there's wise people in the world, but then there's fools. So you're telling me that the fool's errand is also just as valid and true as the wise person's errand? He has, a, has an existential crisis. How can you laugh at the exclusive truth claim of God and then spew your own truth claim like you're God? If I turn the scalpel on that argument, how does that even work? So he has a crisis. And you're wondering, you know, where is this all going? Death is like this big boss battle that nobody wins. How does, how does Ecclesiastes end? Well, sign up for my class. No, I'm just kidding. I'll tell you. There's this reality woven deep into the fabric of what it means to be human. We are body and spirit. The physical matters and the soul matters. And both, we can't just turn a blind eye to the reality of what those two things mean. And eternity has been written into our hearts. And we are hardwired for worship of the divine. Something bigger than anything going on in any of our lives. We are hardwired for that kind of transcendence. And to center our life around anything smaller than our loving and glorious creator who clothed himself in the dirt of his own creation and came in Jesus Christ to redeem and reunite and one day restore Anything smaller than him is far too small. We were made for more. And so to be reunited in soul by putting our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ and his resurrection, it relocates 
these deepest desires. In verses 14 to 15, he's saying that the, the Christian faith doesn't end in vague, mystic ideas. It's being raised to this perfected humanity, body and soul. God's goal in redemption is not to do away with this glorious physical universe. His goal is to restore this glorious physical universe. It's the bookends of Scripture. It's Genesis and Revelation. In the beginning, he creates this glorious universe, and he dances over it. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is a Hebrew poem. It's poetry. It doesn't mean that we don't take it literally, that God didn't literally create the world. He did literally create it, but it is a Hebrew poem. I only studied Hebrew for a year, which is like basically not studying Hebrew. You barely know Hebrew when you study it for a year. But in one short year of studying Hebrew, even to my, I am the dullest knife in the Presbyterian drawer, I promise you. And even to me, I was like, this is poetry. And so I got to take it literally and say, it's telling me that God has literally created this universe. It's not a science textbook telling me how he did it. It's telling, it's telling me who he is. And as you unpack the poetry, he loves his creation. He's dancing over it. That's why Genesis 1 and 2 is it's so balanced. Day 1, day 2, the filling the... He's, he's, he's filling what is empty. He's filling what's empty. He's filling what's empty. He's ordering... He's bringing cosmos from chaos. Cosmos from chaos. Cosmos from chaos. It's a dance. He loves it. He loves the material. We destroy everything by chapter 3. The rest of the Bible is a loving creator trying to unite with his wayward creation. And in the book of Revelation, it's the, reu- it's the reuniting of the physical and the spiritual. It's, the, it's this beautiful world restored and our God coming to be with his people. It's poetry again in Revelation. The new Jerusalem coming down. The city coming down to earth. This is, this is apocalyptic poetry, but it, behind the poetry is something is coming. There is a new city that is coming. There is a flourishing that is coming. In this text, Christ is coming. He's, the direction is he's coming towards us. This is all significant. There's interesting details about how Christ will return. There's a lot of different views on how he'll return. I want to focus on the implications of his return. So I'll unpack some of these details here. Verse 16, the Lord will descend with a loud command. This is all familiar language, by the way, for Thessalonians. Descending with a loud command, authoritative command, authority, the king of creation. Christ's first coming was very humble. His second one, not so much. And then there's this, this sound of a loud trumpet. Again, it's a familiar image. They would have recognized it. Oh, the, the, the trumpet announces the arrival of a sovereign. That's what he's giving in the poetry here. It says, all believers who died join the believers still alive and celebrate the return of the king. In renewal, in the beginning, God went to the dust of the ground, and he brought forth life. And in the end, mysteriously, apparently, he's going to do it again. He did it once before, he'll do it again. I don't have any more detail than that. I can't expound upon it. But it just says that those who died and those who happen to still be alive are reunited, that there's a resurrection, glorification of the body. And where's Paul getting all this information? That's a good question. Is he just throwing his hat in the ring? Yeah, there's a lot of ideas about the afterlife. You should read some of these Greek poets. I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. Where's he getting this information? Well, he tells us in verse 15, according to the Lord's word. 
I say this all the time, but I need to remind you again. Jesus didn't rise from the grave and then get zap fried into the realm of God. He walked around for 40 days. If you're a historian, that, that warrants at least a pause to explain why Christianity wasn't laughed out of Rome, which it should have been, and it permeated Rome. 40 days, Jesus Christ is seen by hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of eyewitnesses. And Jesus spent 40 days with his apostles. And Paul calls himself the least of the apostles because he didn't get all 40 days. He had an encounter with Jesus, and then he spent time with the apostles where they're all discussing, no doubt, the things that the resurrected Jesus is teaching them, uniting all things from the entirety of the Old Testament to his teaching. And Jesus gives this to Paul. So Paul's speaking with a tremendous amount of authority here. And then he says in verse 17 that we, we, we meet the Lord in the air. This meeting of the Lord. This phrase to us in English, it doesn't land. But the, again, the original audience. In the Greek, it's apanthesen uh, to kuriu. Kuriu is Lord. Kurios, right? Lord. <clears throat> they would have said, Kaiser at kurios. Caesar is Lord. The Christians were saying, Christos Jesus at kurios. Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord mean, it, Lord is like the one who has all authority and ownership. It is an absolute right statement. And they would have familiar with these sort of phrases. So we're going to meet the Lord. So this whole picture that he's painted, a trumpet blasts, we go and meet the Lord. They would have been familiar with this because when a conquering Lord comes into the city, people would leave their houses and they'd be in the street and they would meet the Lord. And where did they go? Back into their city to celebrate the conquering of that Lord. So Paul uses that imagery for us. So regardless of the various views on this, which I don't have time to get into today, but if you're like, what about the pre-trib and the pan-trib and the pre-wrath and the post-wrath? Let's just have a coffee. I'm not going to get into that this morning. But the point is, regardless of how you <laughs> expound a part, oh, I'll say this, the Left Behind series, it's in the fiction section for a reason. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, but, so we are not going to meet Jesus in the air physically and then going off someplace called heaven. Even if your interpretation is that we go into the air mysteriously and physically and meet with Christ, even if that's true and I could be wrong and maybe that is exactly what happens, we're still coming back here because that's the, that's the language that Paul has given. Christ's renewal is coming here. That's consistent with from Genesis to Revelation and the New Jerusalem coming down the renewal that's coming here. We're not, we're not, it's not an evacuation program, it's restoration. That gives significant meaning to everything, absolutely everything that we're all up to in terms of our vocations. As I preached on the week that we're talking about vocation. Because now, everything we do is in a glorious harmony of where everything's headed. Bringing the ways of the king to our vocation. Bringing the ways of the king to our neighborhood, to our street. Everything matters now. Campus, hanging out, recreation, meeting your buddies at a pub, meeting your friends for coffee. Whatever it is you're up to, you're just bringing the ways of your loving creator, imitating Christ in that way. You're just, because this is where, this is congruence. This is where history is going into a renewal. As opposed to, "Ah, let's just do this thing anyway until we don't exist anymore. Radical dislocation, not only from God's reality, but from, I think, the deepest longings of our soul. And so, this is intellectually and psychologically satisfying, these things that Paul is giving us. 
By intellectually satisfying, I mean there are people in this church who have such profound gifts in the realms of science and math that if you stood up here and had 10 minutes to just expound on your area of expertise on this world of ours, the detail and the precision would be utterly staggering. And so it's intellectually satisfying to look deeply into our world from the point of view of the scientific community and find a great coherence with the divine God and creator who has lovingly created all things. It is intellectually satisfying and it's psychologically satisfying because it's what we want. And the last thing as I close is the hope for today. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You know, the day of judgment is a day of deliverance. I'm going to expound on that because the text will open up into judgment and all these things. So further weeks we're going to be expounding on it. But suffice it to say, every time judgment is pronounced, deliverance is given. Half the courtroom is outraged because the judge bangs his gavel and they are pronounced guilty. And they, in their own hearts and minds, don't think they're guilty or they thought they were going to get away with it. But the other half of the courtroom has a party because justice has been served and they celebrate that there's deliverance. Finally, justice has come. The Thessalonian church and our church by extension, we're told, to, we're told to encourage each other with these words. When we're grappling with death and our sorrow and our suffering, we often want answers. But we're not healed by answers. We're healed by a person. It's by turning to Jesus Christ, our loving God, who cares for us, who loves us, who's with us in our sorrow and our suffering. We all need an anchor that can handle the deepest devastation that life can throw at us. We need an anchor that reorients our hearts and our minds even in the face of death. So as Christians we grieve, but our tears are not without hope because death does not have the final word. To borrow from author Douglas McKelvey, death is not a period that ends a sentence. It is but a comma, a brief pause for the fuller thought that unfolds into eternal life. A magnificent resurrection that follows death and swallows death entirely. Yes, death is tragic and terrible. But it is also the pompous antagonist in God's divine comedy. Even as death seeks to destroy all that is good, death is proved to be a nearsighted buffoon whose overreaching plans will fail, whose ethereal kingdom will crumble. Yes, the old creation rumbles along, but the new creation is broken in. And this means that we live in imitation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with a great sense of hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that time is no longer the enemy that slowly steals everything away from us. Time is now God's ally, moving us towards renewal. When Christ the King returns, he will restore all things. And this fallen world will be remade in the end, and God's glorious recreation will be as it was intended in the beginning. And he will raise us from death to enjoy it. Amen. Let's pray.